Well, hello, Christ Chapel, and hello to all of you joining us at the West Campus, South Campus, Converge, Hive, Internet Campus. We're so glad that you chose to be a part of the Christ Chapel family and worship with us today because today is a very special day for our family that you'll uh, get to hear about. We'll get to celebrate something that's pretty incredible uh, here at the end of the sermon. But uh, I wanted to tell you a little bit about the conversations that we've been uh, having with our boys lately. Many of you know that our boys are are younger, uh, nine and five years old. And so as they mature and they uh, grow in their faith, uh, we're having some interesting conversations with them. One of them is about they want to know who is a Christian and who isn't a Christian. Uh, one, because they, they really do, you know this, children have wonderfully evangelistic hearts and, and it's awesome. And so we love to see that and want to continue to foster that. Uh, but they want to know, you know, dad, is, is that person a, a Christian? Is that person a Christian? And so they look for these things that are very uh, obvious and very evident to, to wonder if those people are believers. So for example, they will see a person who is wearing, you know, just a cross uh, on their necklace. And they'll say, dad, is, is, is that person a believer? And I'll say, I, I don't know. Or, or they will see, uh, you know, one of those, the, they're easily called with the boys, the Christian fish, the Igthus uh, on, on the back of the car. And they'll say, dad, is that person a Christian? And I'll say, were they speeding? No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> they'll see that and they'll say, are they a Christian? And I'll say, I, I don't know. You see, they look for these identifying marks of believers and they ask me if they're Christians or not. And I always say, I don't know, which is super confusing for them. First, because they're like, dad, aren't you a pastor? Like, shouldn't you know the answers to these questions? Uh, but it's also confusing to them because these very obvious symbols that, that, that are outward focused meant to portray the, the Christian life or be Christian symbols that we identify with don't necessarily reflect a person's heart. I mean, somebody could have bought a used car with an ictus on there that's not a believer. And they never put it on there in the first place and they can't get it off. Maybe they want to get it off. You know, crosses, they're just kind of fashion these days. They don't necessarily mean I am a Christian. And those identifying marks are are a little bit harder. Now, it's very easy and it's very natural for our boys to want to see something that's obvious and clear as an identifying mark for believers. They want to know, are they or aren't they? And we want those things too. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't it be nice to have those very clear, uh, distinguishing marks. Is this person a believer or is this person not? And because we want to know those things, sometimes we fall into the trap of making up those marks ourselves. As to what those marks are of a believer or or a non-believer. And we draw those lines pretty thinly, meaning we say, does that person read this book? Has this person listened to this podcast? Do they watch that television show? Or pick a, a social issue? Have they acted in this way? Have they not acted? Were they slow to act? Did they overreact? I mean, any action or inaction, it doesn't matter. And people go, they're probably not a believer. 
And we look for these things. And the problem is when we look for those identifying marks that, that sometimes are very obvious so that we can have the assurance whether a person is a believer or not a believer, it puts us in a very self-righteous position where we begin to try to identify people's hearts in ways that we aren't called to judge necessarily uh, those people's hearts. Now we want everyone to come to know Christ and we want everyone to be believers, but what are those identifying marks? Those distinguishing identity things where we say that person is a believer. Uh, Ephesians chapter one, Paul tells us that the two identifying marks of a believer are the faith in Jesus and love for one another. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. So if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. We're gonna continue our series today called Poured Out, where we're walking through the upper room discourse. Remember, this is the last night that Jesus spends with his disciples before he's about to be crucified the next day. And he's in this upper room celebrating the Passover meal with them, pouring out his heart to them. These are essentially his last words. And we know, praise God, that he was resurrected from the dead. And so he came back to uh, commune with the disciples. But I mean, this is, this is essentially it for them. At least that they, they know and they think. And Jesus is pouring out his heart into them. And we started off this series last week. And remember, it, the context of this is Jesus loving his disciples. Remember in verse one of chapter 13, it says, Jesus loved them to the end. And that word end is actually uh, the word telos, which doesn't mean just chronological end of his life, but it means he loved them to the end of his own purpose, his purpose for being here on this earth. He loved them to, to the end of his purpose. Now his purpose for coming to the earth was to seek and to save the lost, to die on the cross for our sins and therefore be resurrected so that we understand the resurrection life and can therefore be connected to God forever. He restores our relationship with a holy God through his sinless sacrifice and our faith in him. But his other purpose was to make disciples was to carry on that message so that that message didn't just die out with him. And so that's why he pours his heart out into his disciples. And that's why we're doing this series because we want to embody God's heart. Why? So that we can reach those in our own backyard who do not know Jesus by being his disciples. That's why we're doing this. We want to embody his heart. And if we're gonna embody his heart, we need his heart poured into us. And he pours out his heart in this upper room discourse. And last week, we saw how he did it, how he started off this Passover meal of which, remember, he would have been this patriarchal figure leading in this meal. This meal was an annual feast that had different stages in it and different things you were supposed to do at different times. And so he would have been leading that meal as kind of a father figure for these disciples. But before the meal started, if you remember the way that he poured out his heart was pouring water into the basin and washing his disciples' feet. The one who shouldn't have been washing the feet, the one who is master, teacher, rabbi, humbled himself and loved his disciples. 
And I don't want you to miss this today because it's really the undercurrent, not only of the upper room discourse and the way that Jesus's heart was formed, but it's the heart he wants us to have. And that's a humble heart. Jesus was a humble servant. And as we talk about our love for one another, the undergirding thing, uh, principle, characteristic of love is humility. We have to be humble if we're going to love one another. And so Jesus humbles himself, takes off his outer garment, puts himself in a very vulnerable and humble position and washes his disciples' feet. And after he's done with that, he gives his disciples a new command. And we find it in verses 31 to 35. So I want you to just follow along with me. Let's read the whole thing together and then we'll go and we'll break it down together. So verse 31. When he had gone out, that was Judas, and I'll explain that in a second. Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him when? At once. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So I leave a new commandment with you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another another. And we're going to stop right there. May God bless the reading of his word and may our hearts be open to hear from him. So the context of Jesus's new commandment that he gives to his disciples right here is crisis time. There is a crisis in this upper room. Not only has he thrown off the whole vibe as he washed the disciples' feet, but now it says, when Judas had gone out, see what happened right between uh, him washing his, their feet and verse 31 was Jesus tells them again, hey, I'm gonna be betrayed. I have been telling you this, disciples, and I'm gonna be betrayed by one of you in this room. And they say, who is it gonna be? And he says, the one who I give this bread to. And he gives the bread to Judas. And he says, go and do it quickly. What you have decided, do it quickly which meant he knew he was gonna be betrayed. So get out of here and, and go start that process now because he knew the father's time. And so he leaves, the disciples say, is he going to buy something for the meal? Like they're confused, they don't understand. But then verse 31, when he had left or after he had left, that's Judas, to betray Jesus. Now he gives them this new command. And this is the crisis mode. Jesus is telling them that they can't come along with him where he's going to go. He is going to leave them. Judas, the one who has walked with them as a disciple, has now left them. We find out in verse 38, Peter is going to deny Jesus. This tight, small group is about to be abandoned by three. A quarter of them gone very quickly. This is crisis mode. And Jesus gives this command to his disciples to love one another. And you say, that sounds so simple, Cody. Why would he tell them this at this time? Well, we know in our own personal lives that when 
a matriarchal or patriarchal figure leaves a family, it oftentimes tears the children apart. Doesn't it? You don't want to go there, I know. But when a patriarchal figure, a matriarchal figure dies, oftentimes the family tree dies too. Because when they leave, the children begin to bicker with one another. And they begin to fight over any inheritance that's left. They fight over where are we going to now have Thanksgiving? Where are we now going to have Christmas? And you want that necklace and I wanted that necklace. And you wanted that and I wanted that. And we fight over those things and then it gets into, well, mom or dad never treated me fairly. They always loved you more. And the family just begins to divide. And it's an unfortunate truth. I hate that that happens and you do too. But we see it all too often in our world. And what every great matriarchal or patriarchal figure says is, children, love one another. When I'm not here, stick together. Love each other. And that's Jesus' command to his disciples. You see, he wanted them to continue to get together for these annual feasts. He didn't want them to be at each other's throats because they were at each other's throats. Remember this context, we talked about it last week in Luke chapter 22 where they're arguing over who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who gets to sit on Jesus' right and left? They're already fighting with one another. And Jesus says, I want you to love one another. See, Jesus wanted his disciples to love one another while he was away. In this crisis moment, when they knew that they would be put through this crucible, this testing time, he wanted them to love one another. It's, it's almost like they were about to go to, to war. There's going to be betrayal. There's going to be an inquisition. There's going to be death and crucifixion coming up. And there was a, a famous saying that was quoted back in the early 1900s that the first casualty of war is truth. Have you heard that before? A pastor rightly said, and I agree with him, the first casualty of war is not truth, it's love. And he doesn't want them to lose their love for one another. And he wants them to stick together. And that's why he says in verses 33 to 34, little children, yet a little while I am with you and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, he tells them this in John chapter seven and John chapter eight. He tells them twice. So just as I've told the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. Where is he going? To the cross. To pay for the sins of the disciples, of you, me, and anyone else who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. So, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also ought to love one another. So he's saying, I'm gonna go to the cross, you can't follow me, and so I'm gonna give you a new command. Now, how many of you does that sound weird to, that that's a new command to love people? You're like, Jesus, this isn't new. You, you've already told us this before. In fact, this, was, this is Old Testament. This is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, that you're supposed to love your neighbor. So you go, Jesus, don't you remember that you told us this? I mean, you seem to have the whole world under control. 
How do you not remember telling us this before? Well, what is new is it's new in concept because Jesus doesn't just say, love one another. What does he say? As I have loved you, love one another. You see, this is new in concept. They have never seen this kind of love before, that where a servant king would come and wash their feet that would love them unconditionally. And again, this word love is this agape love, this unconditional, sacrificial love. And so it's new in concept to them. They have never seen it before. So it's new in quality. Oh, I thought loving my neighbor was just taking them a meal when they were sick. That means a little bit more than that when we look at Jesus' example as he has loved us. And so it's new in quantity, not just quality. It's never ending. As he loves to the end, so he calls us to love one another to the end. But it's also new in its empowerment that they would be empowered with the Holy Spirit to love one another as he has loved them. See, this is a new commandment, but I also think it's weird that he calls it a commandment. Have you ever been commanded to love somebody? Like, you better love them. You may have said that to your parents about the person you were gonna marry, I know. But it's kind of weird. It's like, I can't make you love anybody. I can't command you to love somebody. But Jesus can if he enables us to. And he enables us to fulfill his command of loving one another as he has loved us by filling us with the Holy Spirit. So that when we rely on the Holy Spirit in us, then he can love one another. We can love one another as he has loved us. And that is the new command. So what I want to do is walk through very quickly what that new command looks like. What that quality of love looks like from the example of Jesus in this passage. And again, it will be, I can't quantify that. I can't say hey, this means washing the dishes or this means mowing your neighbor's lawn because we all know that you can do those things without love. So this is a motivation deal. So all I can do is qualify it. I cannot quantify it for you. So I wanna qualify what this love looks like very quickly from these verses so that we can apply this to our lives. So this loving one another looks like loving one another in a way that glorifies your Father in heaven in a way that glorifies your Father in heaven. And I'll define glorify for you. You have these weird verses, you think, in verses 31 and 32, where Jesus talks about this glory and you get tripped up over, wait, who's being glorified in whom? And the point of that is, is that the way that Jesus loves us glorifies the Father in heaven. And glory, glory or glorify means to give value or to give worth to magnify, to to say this is valuable, to hold it up so that others can see. In fact, this word glorify is used five times in those first two verses. And it's the Greek word doxa, where we get our word doxology. You know, when we sing, you know, praise God from whom all, I won't sing anymore. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's the doxology. We're giving God worth. We're, We're holding him up. He is worthy, we're praising him, we're singing about him. 
We're saying he is worthy. And the way that Jesus wants us to love one another is by showing others that God is worthy. How do we do that? We do that by being empowered by the Holy Spirit when we love one another. But let me break it down in a couple different ways. I'll show you how I do it in my own life. I ask myself this, this question. Do I love others to get credit or to give glory? Do I love others to get credit myself or to give glory to God? And here's why that, that's important because obviously first it's selfishly motivated. The first one, if I'm only loving to get credit and I want people to go, wow, Cody, you're amazing. You're, you're great. You just love people so well. That's very selfishly motivated and that does not bring God glory. Or do I love people in order to give God credit? Where they say, gosh, God, you are amazing. One of the passages that we'll study in Matthew chapter five, I told you we'll get into Matthew at the end of this year, is that we would show the world, we would shine as light so that they praise our Father in heaven, see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. We bring glory to God through the way that we love one another. And that's important because if I am loving in order to get credit, then my love will quickly come to an end when I stop getting credit. If I'm not getting the strokes that I want, if I'm not getting the adoration that I feel like I am due or I deserve, then I stop loving. Is that the way that God loved us? No. But when we're loving in order to glorify God, there is no end to that. And that's why it's very important that you understand the source of that kind of love. Because if you don't have this source, the never-ending, sacrificial, unconditional love of Jesus, then it will run out quickly if you're running on your own strength. And so if we love one another in order to give glory to God, it comes from an unending source and it never ends. That glorifies God because we're relying on him. We're giving praise and glory to him. If your love is running out, maybe, You're only loving to get credit. The second qualifier is love one another in a way that verifies your new identity. Love one another in a way that verifies your new identity. I love how this, it says it here, how he addresses the disciples. He calls them little children. Now, I think he calls them little children First, because remember, he would have taken on this patriarchal role in in the meal. But this is the only time that we see Jesus calling his disciples his little children. The only time. Why here? Why here? I think it's because exactly what we talked about earlier. They're about to go into crisis and little children are going to fight with one another. But you know what? Little children are also related to one another. And we might not know, if you looked at our boys just side by side, you probably wouldn't say they're brothers. They look completely different. One has crazy hair and he has a crazy personality. We love him to death. The other one has very clean cut and he is by the book, our rule follower. Totally different. But if you see them interact with one another, you know they're brothers. They don't look like each other, but when they interact with one another, totally tell that they're brothers. They do love one another, they fight, they bicker, 
but they love one another at the end of the day. And he admonishes them to love one another as little children, those who are related to one another. You see, because when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, we don't only gain a heavenly father, we gain brothers and sisters. We are his little children. And he's called us to love the entire family of God, to love one another as his little children. And that verifies our identity. You see, you can't just say, well, I love God. I don't like them, but I love God. In fact, John brings this up in 1 John chapter four. It says, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's a strong word. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Does this sound familiar? Whoever loves God must also love his brother. We see this repeated, that you can't just say you love God and you don't love his children. We show that we love God when we love his children because we cannot see him, but we can see his kiddos. And so we love one another and that verifies our relationship with him. I don't know if any of you have ever struggled in your belief of Jesus. Like, hey, am I saved, am I not saved? And we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But one of the things that, that we fall back on is, do you have a changed heart? Like, does your heart beat for the things that Jesus' heart beats for? Do you care about the things he cares for? If we don't care about his children, then I wonder if we have his heart. Because this is what he spends his last night doing, is pouring out his heart into his disciples. And I find it ironic that right after Jesus gives this command to his little children, his disciples, to love one another, Peter says, in talking about he can't go with him, Peter says, I'm gonna follow you, Jesus, and I'm gonna lay down my life for you. Like, I'm just gonna live my life for you. And, and he says, listen, buddy, you're gonna deny me three times. And I think that's there because I think Peter is, uh, he's a great disciple, but I think Peter's taking this holier than thou kind of point of view of, I'll just love you, Jesus. And Jesus goes, you know what? Just prove your love for me by loving those others around you. Just love them. <laughs> I think that's what Jesus' command is to us. You wanna love God? Love one another. That helps us understand that we have a changed heart. That's what helps us know God more. And then finally, love one another in a way that unifies you with other believers. Love one another in a way that unifies you with other believers. This is about giving one another grace. Uh, it feels like our world is in crisis. And when the world is in crisis, it seems like everybody goes into a survival mode. And it's every man for themselves. And that crisis ends up dividing rather than uniting. And at this crisis moment in the scriptures, Jesus is drawing them together, not driving them apart. And he wants them to come together. Why? Because this is their means of survival. They are about to be left alone in the world in a sense. And he's saying, I need you to take care of each other. 
It's the way that you're going to get along. And I know that that is gonna be hard for them. Remember, I brought it up earlier. The context here is they're arguing over who's gonna be the greatest. Now tell me there weren't harsh words said around that table of who do you think you are? Second class disciple. Jesus loves me more. I saw him transfigured. You didn't. I mean, that happened. Don't you think people played those trump cards? And now Jesus is going, hey, I'm gonna skedaddle and you're gonna have to come together. You've got to. It's the way that you survive. That means in order to love one another, we're gonna have to be gracious toward each other. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 I know we've talked about this just recently, but it says, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. If everything is hunky-dory, then why do we need that kind of love? That means things are gonna be hard. That means things are gonna be said. That means people are gonna have different perspectives. People are gonna have different opinions. People are gonna say hurtful things. People are gonna do hurtful things. And we need a love that's patient and kind because that's the way that he loves us because we've offended him. We've said hurtful things against him. We've, We've gone against him. We've turned our back on him. And yet he loves us all the same. We need his love to love one another in a way that unifies each other. And here's the reason why it's going to make a difference because Jesus will reach the world by the way the disciples love one another. Jesus will reach the world by the way the disciples love one another. I love how Jesus gives a result out of this love for one another. He doesn't only want us to glorify him He doesn't only want us to verify our belief in him. He doesn't only want us to stay unified together, but he says he's going to use that love to reach the world. Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus wants his body to be a place of unparalleled affection for him in a way that's attractive to our world. I love what Francis Schaeffer said as I was reading for this. He said, God gives the right to the world to judge whether or not we are Christians. That is scary. That the outside world is watching us and saying, are you really his disciples? That's a sobering thought. And it's important because, let me tell you, what the world wants and what the world is dying for is to be loved. They're not dying to be judged. And the world doesn't care about the things that we do inside these walls necessarily. They don't know how much you tithe. They don't hear you sing your songs. They don't hear you pray. But they see you love. And that might be the only thing that's attractive to them. 
about something that this world does not offer, that unconditional, sacrificial love of Jesus. That's a, that's, that's a huge, huge deal. It's, it's an identifying mark of his believers. You see, there's nothing attractive if Christians are cannibalizing one another inside their walls. There's nothing, who wants to be a part of that? I don't. Why would anybody else? Is this a place where we love, where we forgive, where we give each other the benefit of the doubt, where we bear all things, endure all things, where we're patient and kind? That's the identifying mark that says Jesus was here. You've seen those, those graffiti bridges before, or maybe, I don't know, maybe it used to be a thing on bathroom walls, but do not read what's on bathroom walls, Okay. But, you know, I was here. How does Jesus say, I was here? By the way, we love one another. That's our identifying mark. And I think Christ Chapel has had that identifying mark of love for so long, and I'm so grateful for it, and I think that that's attributed to, first, praise God, the Spirit of God that has been with our church for for so many years, but it's also because we have great great leadership. We have great leadership that has been here for a a long time and continues to be an integral part of our leadership. So I believe that um, we need to celebrate a couple leaders today, and that is Ted and Lynn Kitchens. Ted and Lynn Kitchens here in the, in the flesh. Um, we are celebrating them today. Uh, something that I've heard Ted say many times to me before is the church needs to take every opportunity to celebrate when it can. You've told me that, haven't you? Yeah, and so we need to celebrate. Why? Because 40 years ago on July 1st, 1981, uh, Ted and Lynn Kitchens followed God's call to come here to Christ Chapel. And we wanted to celebrate their 40-year anniversary. Uh, We're not kicking them out. They're still on staff here. Uh, But this is an opportunity to celebrate four decades of service where they have embodied the heart of Jesus to so many uh, of us, where they have glorified God, where they have unified us, where they have certainly verified their calling and their love for Jesus. So we tried to think of a a special way uh, to do that. And so we thought of something that's near and dear to their heart, and that's Dallas Theological Seminary. And this past year, uh, they built the Dr. Mark Bailey and Barbie Bailey Student Center in in a new Chafer Chapel. And in order to do some fundraising for that new building, uh, they sold some, some bricks. And so the commemorative bricks. 
And so we bought a brick, the elder board uh, on your behalf, uh, bought bricks for them, uh, one for Ted and one for Lynn with uh, their favorite verses on there, Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation in Christ. You've heard Ted say that many times. And Lynn definitely embodies the Proverbs 31 uh, woman. And so uh, we wanted to honor them. So we bought those bricks. Uh, they're not there yet, so don't drive to Dallas. There's really no other reason to drive to Dallas anyway. Um, <laughs> But don't drive there to see them. Um, they're, they're not in the ground yet, but I'm sure we'll do something special uh, when they're in the ground. But uh, those represent the firm foundation that these two have been for our church. Uh, I always say we stand on the shoulders of giants. Here are the giants. And so we are so thankful for them and love you guys and just super, super grateful for you. Yeah, yeah. Anything you want to say? Yeah, thank you all so much. Oh my gosh, it's so great to see you all. Yeah, sit down, thank you. <laughs> we know that um, in the last 40 years, all the wonderful things that have happened at Christ Chapel has been because of God's faithfulness to Christ Chapel. And we just know, wow, we got to be a part of it alongside all of you. And so... We are grateful for who you all are, and we, of course, are grateful for who God is. We just thank him, thank him for uh, letting us be with all of you and uh, see what great things he has in store, had in store, and has in store in the future. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd uh, like to repeat that. Lynn's been involved with this from the very first day we came to the church when there was no office and no telephone. Uh, but uh, I also want to say this is humbling and very honoring. So thank you, Christ Chapel. Yeah. Yeah. Love you. We've asked uh, the chairman of our elder board, Jerry Daniel, to just pray over them and thank God for them. So pray along with us, please. Yeah, let's pray together, please. Our Father, as we worship you this morning, I'm reminded of what Psalm 119 teaches us that your faithfulness endures to all generations. So this morning as we celebrate this 40-year milestone of Ted and Lynn, uh, we are grateful for the example they've given us. We know they're still around and continuing to do your work, but we want to commemorate this 40 years uh, as their influence has rippled into our church, in our communities, not just in Fort Worth, but in Willow Park and Burleson and, and farther reaches, Lord. But as they've acknowledged here this morning, we know that you are the source of all of this. But we thank you for the inspiration that they have given us as people who serve day by day, step by step, leading people in a walkway that leads to you. So help us, Lord, to be inspired by this type of leadership. Help us to uh, follow the words that I remember from the hymn that says, Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footsteps that we leave lead them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. So, Lord, we thank you for lives that inspire us, 
and we ask for your strength as we all move forward in steps of faith. You are worthy of all this today, Lord. We praise you in spirit and in truth. Amen.